Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men. And we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today, we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Do you know what the 11 Hebrew words mean that God spoke to the woman in the Garden of Eden? Bruce and Joy put that and more in the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. We invite you to get a copy today and make sure you have a solid foundation for understanding the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible. It turns out when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And now enjoy today's episode of The Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is how Eve and Paul were alike. And we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. We're working through the study guide in the book Back to Eden, 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3 by me, Bruce C.E. Fleming. And we're into a fantastic passage right now where Paul talks about the Garden of Eden. The other day I was busy doing some mindless work around the house and listening to an audiobook. At times, my mind was more on what my hands and feet were doing. At other times, my mind was more on what I was listening to. I tried to pay attention to the words of the audiobook. Was it at an important place I should really focus on, or could I miss some of the details and focus on my other work? Occasionally, I decided to back up and re-listen to a passage in the book. The passage of 1 Timothy 2, 13-15 is a passage that merits our full attention, and then some. This is a passage that, when it's taught to us, is filled with misconceptions, prejudice, and contradictions. Even the translators don't help us very much here. Why the problems? I've learned it's because they've misinterpreted the words God said to the woman in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. They've treated the 11 Hebrew words of Genesis 3.16 as if God there cursed the woman in one or, or more ways. I base my thinking on the research of my wife, Dr. Joy Fleming, who shows that God didn't curse Eve or Adam or limit woman in any way. When Genesis 3.16 is made clear, passages that refer to Eden like this one in 1 Timothy 2 are made clear as well. So it's time to ask the following questions of this passage. We can do so because these are the right questions to ask of these verses. Why does Paul here in 1 Timothy 2, 3, or 13 to 15 refer to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve? Did Adam and Eve have something to do with the wayward women leaders Timothy was correcting in Ephesus? If so, what? Why does Paul bring up the childbearing in verse 15? And who are they at the end of verse 15b? We can answer these good questions because we've looked previously at the context. We have clearly defined the actions Paul is recommending in 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 3, 16. In 1 Timothy 2, 11, Paul uses this passage's only imperative verb. He gives the command with an exclamation point, let learn. Let these women learn as good students paying attention. 
Then Paul opens the digression of verses 2.13 to 15a, and finally in verse 2.15b, he refers back to his advice that he gave at the beginning in verses 9a and 10. That advice concerned the proper behavior to be practiced by the formerly wayward women overseers whom Timothy was to retrain and restore to ministry. In this digression of 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 15a, Paul justifies the course of action he's recommending. And he explains, by taking the example from the Garden of Eden, why he's prescribing now in, for Timothy in emphasis such gentle correction for the wayward women overseers. The first degree sinners Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul turned over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. For the second-degree wayward overseers, the women in verses 2, 9 to 15, Paul recommends a very different kind of teaching. They are not being handed over to Satan to be taught. They are to be allowed to learn. Let them learn and be recertified as good students and teachers by Timothy himself or by Priscilla or by other faithful overseers in the church at Ephesus. Well, I'm joined by Joanne Hagemeyer, who wrote the study guides for our book here on cha in Chapter 6. Hello, Joanne. Hi, Bruce. I am eager to jump in. Okay. Would you lead us uh, starting through here, uh, starting with Exercise 1? I'd love to. In this first exercise, we want to describe the difference between the two categories of sinning. So the first category, and this is Question 1A, Describe the differences between first-degree transgression, which you were talking about, and second-degree transgression. I think even back then, it was pretty much like we have now. Today, we have what's called first-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. So first-degree is that you, do, you did it on purpose with malice aforethought uh, and, uh, or murder one. And then we have, yes, you killed somebody, but you didn't do that on purpose. You weren't laying in wait. You weren't aiming for that person. And that's called manslaughter. And there's a difference the way judges will mete out a judgment. It'll be more harsh for the first degree and more or less harsh for the second degree. So how does this difference then affect the judgment given to the transgressor? Well, you know, you have to figure out what's going on in the heart of the transgressor. You have to understand, did this person do it on purpose? Were they, uh, were they planning to do this? Were, you know, there's an evil intent that's involved with the person that does it on purpose compared to the person that just uh, kills somebody. There were in, this, in, the, in Israel, from the very first days when the people of Israel came into the promised land, God set aside six different cities of refuge. This was a, a, a concrete example of God's grace. If somebody did kill somebody, but it wasn't on purpose, back in those early days, a person would, uh, in charge of retribution, would kill the person that had, had murdered somebody. And uh, if, if you knew you hadn't done it on purpose, you could flee to a city of refuge, they would give you a trial, and then they would, uh, you could hide right there. And you would be protected until the Jubilee year when all people were set free. So this is a difference all the way through the history of the Bible between first degree and second degree punishment. So let's talk about a couple of examples. According to 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, who were the people in the Garden of Eden? Right. And I think that's why I think this difference between first degree and second degree plays a big role now in what we're going to read here in these, these several verses. Well, the people in the Garden of Eden that are mentioned here in 1 Timothy are Adam and Eve. We all know them as Adam and Eve. Uh, we refer to them as Adam and Eve. This is the very first man, the very first woman, first husband, first wife. God created them in the garden on day six and married them. And they were the ones who were living in the Garden of Eden. And then they were the ones that Satan attacked at the tree. 
But the use here of these two names, Adam and Eve, is surprising because Paul's referring to what happened in Genesis 2 when God creates them. This is before the attack. And in verse 13, both of these proper names are used, Adam and Eve. But they weren't named Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. When God named them, that's referred to in Genesis 5 too. It says God called their name Adam, or they were the two humans, or they were Mr. and Mrs. Adam. There wasn't a, a proper name for either one of them. It was just sweetie and hello, honey, you know, but they, they weren't hello, Adam. Oh, hi, Eve. They didn't do that back then. Not in chapter two, but Paul uses that, uses those two names out of place in a sense here in verse 13. In verse 14, he doesn't call the woman Eve because he's already made his point, doesn't use that proper name. Here, he correctly referred to her without using that name because that's the name that the man only imposed on her at the end of chapter three. After God judged him, the man rebelliously called her a new name like he'd called names to the animals. And he grabbed the name Adam and took it only for himself and gave her another name. What doesn't make much difference what that was. In verse 14, Paul also refers to their sins out of order. At the tree, the woman ate first and then the man. But here in verse 14, on his way to making his point, Paul refers to the man first and then the woman. What's going on here, I think, is that Paul is setting us up. It's very clear in our minds now. We've got two people created in the Garden of Eden. We got Adam and we have Eve. And then we have two sinners. We have Adam the sinner and then we have Eve the sinners, sinner. And he's going to make a very clear distinction between uh, these two sinners. So let's go into that Genesis passage then, Genesis 3, 12 and 13, keep that in mind, and then name the individual who sinned intentionally and the individual in Eden who became a transgressor by being deceived. Right. So when God asks the man, what have you done? He doesn't even talk about the, the serpent tempter who led him astray, who lied to him, doesn't even talk about him. And instead, he blames God and he blames the woman. And he admits, yeah, I ate. But he's very, very still very rebellious at this point. When God says to the woman in verse 13, what have you done? She says, well, I, I see now that I was deceived by the serpent tempter over there and, and I ate. So when God hears her, he takes her words and immediately acts on her words as if they were true. Well, they were true, and that's why he acts on her words. And he names her for permanent combat against Satan because they were already were in combat. She was attacked at the tree, and then she pointed him out. And so she was her, uh, they, they, well, God says, I will put enmity between the two of them. And that's what was going on. But more importantly, for our case here in First Timothy 2, she, uh, it says that she said, the serpent deceived me. And Paul brings that out. He says, she was deceived. Well, since that's true, now we're going to try and explain the differences in God's judgments on the man and the woman in Eden. And question 3a asks, in Genesis three seventeen, God imposes a curse on the soil because of who and why? Yeah. So there are only two curses in the Garden of Eden. A lot of people say, oh, there's three or four curses. God cursed the dirt and God cursed the serpent and God cursed the woman and God cursed the man. And, they, and others come up with even more. But actually, the word arur, or arar in, in Hebrew is only used twice. God only cursed the serpent and he cursed the soil. He didn't curse the woman. He didn't curse the man. But there is a curse because of the man. So when God says, because of you, I'm going to put a curse on the serpent, 
That's because of the serpent's tempter's rebellion. And then God says to the man who was rebellious, because of you, and he, he deflects it, doesn't strike the man with it, but because of the man, uh, cursed is the ground. So God imposes a curse on the soil because of the man. So the B part of this question asks, how is this different then than how God treats the woman in Eden in Genesis 3.16? He treats her very differently. When God speaks to the serpent tempter, he he makes six points in the text in Genesis 3.14 and 15. And my wife, Dr. Joy Fleming, in her doctoral research, she brought this out very clearly. Those same six points are repeated when God speaks to the other rebel, the man, in verses 17, 18, and 19 of Genesis 3. Now, it's very different for her. There is no because of, because you did this. There's no eat this. There's no curse. There's not, it's very different in Genesis 3, 16. Although people just read through these verses and they go, oh, there was a serpent on the, there was a curse on the serpent. Oh, there was a curse on the woman, maybe two. Oh, there was a curse on the man. No, no, you have to read through this very carefully. And when we do, there was no curse on the woman. I think this is because she was a second degree eater. The man ate on purpose. The woman was deceived and only could be tricked into eating, and then she did. And so God says, okay, the man rebelled against me and my word. You, you corrected the serpent's words until you were finally deceived by the terrible attack that Satan was doing. And, uh, and I'm not going to curse you. So he doesn't. In Genesis 3.16, let's be clear, God says, I'm going to multiply two things. I'm going to multiply your sorrowful toil when you do field work, just like the man will, over the cursed ground. And I'm going to multiply your conception. You will have conception, which we'll see in a moment is a reference to God's, God's first words to the serpent tempter about her offspring. Knowing all this now, and thank you for slowing us down so we can really get the truths out of Genesis, let's bring it back into 1 Timothy. And exercise two asks us to describe the two kinds of sinning Paul was addressing. So the first question, were the overseers named in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20, first or second degree sinners? And how were they like Paul? So this whole middle section of 1 Timothy, starting with 1.18 all the way up through the end of chapter 3, Paul gave us an outline in advance. He says, I'm going to talk about three kinds of sinners here. And, I, and, and the outline is found in his own description where he talks about, I was the chief of sinners. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and, and a disruptive person. And uh, when we're talking about the first category of people in 1 Timothy 1, 19 to 20, we're talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander, and maybe there were others, who were blasphemers. Paul had been a blasphemer, and these people now, at the end of chapter 1, were blasphemers. They abandoned the faith and made a shipwreck. They abandoned a good conscience, made shipwreck of their faith. Now, these guys were first-degree sinners. They were rebellious, and the result was is that Paul abandoned them to Satan to be taught to blaspheme no longer. That's pretty severe punishment, and I think that's clear that they were first-degree sinners. So they were like Paul in the sense that they were blasphemers. They weren't like Paul in the sense that he wasn't a first-degree blasphemer. He did it, but he did it, and he says in chapter 1, I did these things, but I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. He wasn't an on-purpose rebel against God. Yeah, and so then the second question, describe, we are asked, the similarity between the sins of the disruptive overseers in 1 Timothy 2, 8-11, through and Paul's sins, which he does describe in 1 Timothy, as you pointed out. Yeah, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So, 
in chapter two, when Paul begins that section, that he picks up his second sin. He was a persecutor. And so he talks about persecutors in the first seven verses of chapter two. And he says, you know, those who are in authority, whether they're the Jewish leaders or they're the Roman leaders or they're the pagan leaders, whether they're actively persecuting the church or they just potentially could persecute the church, you know, pray for them. Pray, 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 pray. He lists, he lists four different ways to pray. And then he says, pray that they, that they don't persecute the church, that the church might have peace, one. And two, that these people themselves can be saved, just like I was, because I was a persecutor, and I found grace, and I was saved thanks to Jesus. So that's up through verse 7. And now in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 and following, he talks about those who were like his third sin, where he just disrupted the church. So Paul was a disruptive overseer himself. And remember, again, he did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And so he received gentle treatment. In fact, Jesus appointed him to be a, an apostle, even though uh, he had been disruptive. So Jesus was faithful to him. Jesus, the faithful word, the faithful logos, made all the difference in Paul's life. And so Paul now is methodically starting to work his way through in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 11 and 12. He's, he's talking about how can we restore, how can we correct and how can we retrain and how can we restore to ministry these, these disruptive overseers, the men who had gone astray and the women who had gone astray so they can get back into ministry as overseers. Well, he does do it methodically. What a great word. Um, in exercise three, we're actually going to show the two ways Paul exercises correction for the wayward overseers in Ephesus. So let's start with question one, and we're going we're gonna to build it, just like you said. 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20, we have three questions. And the first one was, who are the wayward overseers? So the wayward overseers would be, if we look at chapter three, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, we see that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to, create, to correct certain ones. Some Bible translations make it look like he's just correcting men, but the, the Greek pronouns are quite obviously for, they can include men, they can include women. So the wayward overseers are some who had gone astray and they were causing trouble at, in Ephesus. Uh, they need a correction because you can't let that keep going on. And Paul administers the discipline depending on what kind of a level of sin that a person was doing. So that's actually a key point. And in the second question in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, now who are the wayward overseers? I think this is the heart of the matter of all of the first half of, of the book. Uh, the wayward overseers are these people who were called to take care of the sheep, called to feed the sheep, and instead they were harming the sheep and fleecing the sheep. So they needed to have correction, and uh, Timothy is supposed to let them learn. In other words, he's supposed to retrain them, which is, again, surprising. So Paul was this chief of sinners, and God appoints him to his service. Now, Timothy's supposed to take these wayward women overseers who had been doing some things wrong, and what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to retrain them. Um, he'd obviously silenced them, and now they're probably thinking, well, okay, now I'm not teaching false. Oops, I was teaching incorrectly. Wow, I would like to learn how to teach correctly. Well, I'm not quite sure what I was doing wrong. Let me know what that was. They want to learn. They want to figure this out. And Paul says to them, great, let them learn. That is so gracious. What gracious treatment. And, and question three asks, how is Paul's treatment of the wayward overseers in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 similar to God's treatment of Paul, which he 
actually describes in this letter, 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, and also verses 12 through 14. So I don't know why people don't get this. I mean, I grew up in church uh, from age 11 on, and uh, I remember we moved finally when I was about 14 to my grandma and grandpa's uh, neighborhood, started attending their church. And when it came time for church discipline, if somebody went astray, wow, the hammer came down. And if, if you went astray, especially if you were a leader in the church, you were done. And uh, there was no grace shown to you, and it was just a shame. It was like you had committed whatever it was. Uh, it was the unpardonable sin. And uh, it wasn't until we got to Africa where I came across a situation for the first time, and not the only time, where there was a, a, a well-respected, uh, high-profile pastor who had gotten, obviously, into sin. And the denomination and the local church teamed up, and they took this guy and actually basically put him under house arrest for two years and uh, just to get him to come to himself and to begin to take things seriously. And then they slowly reintroduced him to administrative duties. And then finally, uh, he and I traveled together all the way to Lusaka, Zambia, for a, a, a continental-wide um, conference of African leaders, not too far from, from Victoria Falls. We were so busy, I didn't get a chance to visit Victoria Falls, kind of wanted to. So... Paul asked Timothy to treat them just the way he had been treated. He had been treated grace, graciously and put into service. And so it's to be assumed that this kind of retraining now is gracious and is going to assume that they're going to be put back into service. Now, all of them back into service? No. He's going to give us a whole list, several lists, in fact, in 1 Timothy 3. And you got to check the boxes and make sure you, you, know, you, you fit these uh, you, you, you are properly passed back into service. But yes, the in intention is that you will be restored. It's such a different way to look at it, isn't it? Like you say, the church discipline is often not like that. Hmm. Well, we're going to move into exercise four. We're going to pivot a little bit because now we're going to establish who the collective single noun or singular noun, pardon me, the childbearing refers to, because that's in this passage. So the first question, it's going to ask with reference to 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, to show who Paul means by she in verse 15a. When I went to seminary, you know, I, I came there loving the Bible, wanted to learn more about the Bible. I wanted to teach the Bible. Would you please teach me the Bible so I can go teach others? And when I got to 1 Timothy 2.15, I was taught by uh, a very well-known international uh, professor, Dr. John, w., John R. W. Stott from England. He was marvelous. I really appreciated his teaching. But when he taught us this, I got, I got uh, disillusioned about Bible translation. I, 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 it bothered me a lot. Right here, verse 15, because he said, look, don't pay attention to the numbers. Verse 15 doesn't mean just because it's got the number 15, this is all one sentence. He said, this is, this is not, this is two ideas. So the first part of verse 15 is, is an idea that actually, as I've come to see more, is, is tacked on to verses 13 and 14. So 13, 14, and 15a go together. And then he pointed out that 15b was a reference to earlier in the passage. So actually, he's moved on to something different. So let's focus on 15a. Paul has been talking about Adam and Eve in verse 13. He's been talking about Adam and the woman in verse 14. And then all of a sudden in verse 15, he says, she, there's a singular feminine pronoun, female pronoun, she will be saved through the childbearing. So who's the she? 
Well, I was an English teacher. I was trained in college, and I taught ninth grade English, and I knew what that meant. The antecedent to the pronoun she is Eve. <laughs> so she will be saved. So, okay, Eve will be saved through the childbearing. And Stott made a big deal out of this. He said, now, this, um, this has an article, a definite article in front of childbearing, the childbearing. So he said, you could make it a capital C, the childbearing, meaning the birth of the child, and who would that be? But, and he was he was careful. He said, maybe it means Jesus. And I, I say, certainly it meant Jesus. So Eve was saved by the birth of the child, Jesus. He said it also could mean, and this is interesting, he said it also could mean she will be saved through childbirth. And sadly, well, let me stop. So he said, we got a 50-50 possibility. This either means the childbearing or through childbirth. And he says it could be either way. And I walked out of there with a bit of a sorrow, sorrow, can't even say the word, a sour taste in my mouth because I thought, I, I don't think I could teach this or preach this. And well, it could be this, oh, it could be that. You have to try and make a decision what it's going to be. But I didn't know, and he didn't give me definite details. So it wasn't until years later when it, I finally made, made it be, became clear to me that she will be saved through the childbearing means Eve will be saved through the birth of the child Jesus. If you take it to mean she will be saved through childbirth, you'll, you'll come across what I found in Africa. They were talking about how is it, you see, in the United States, we don't have problems with fistula. We don't have problems with, uh, uh, with all, you know, breech birth. We don't have problems with, you know, problem childbirth like they do in basic cultures that don't have medical care or don't have the money to get to medical care. Or if they have the money to get to medical care, maybe the medical institution doesn't have the equipment or the people or the time to take care of you. So we're not experiencing these things here in the first world, but in the, in the two-thirds world, they are experiencing this. So this is a big question. What does it mean that the woman will be saved through childbirth? It doesn't mean anything. It's not talking about that. It's talking about Eve is going to be saved by birth in the promised child who's going to crush Satan's head. So, but they get all, all concerned and they say, look, how come Jesus didn't save that poor young woman, that poor mother who died in childbirth? It must have been that she was a special sinner or that God didn't answer prayers. And there's all kinds of spiritual fallout by that. It's just a terrible, terrible problem. If you misinterpret this passage, you sow all kinds of uh, turmoil in the lives of many sweet people. Well, you talked about Dr. Stott indicating it could be this, could be that, felt like 50-50. But in question two, we actually have some more Bible verses that maybe could help us zero in a little bit more solidly. And that asks us to compare Genesis 3, 15, and 16, which talk about this childbearing, with Matthew 1, 21 and Luke 1, 35. And I think we can ask, who is meant by the childbearing? Right. We have angels who know what God said in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the angel appears to Joseph, and he tells Joseph, you know, hey, this, this is the child. This is she, Mary will conceive and bear this, you know, son who, or, or the angel says, you will, name his, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We have angels basically quoting what happened in Genesis 3, 15 and 16. So who is meant by the, the childbearing? That definitely means Jesus, the promised offspring, the Messiah. Thinking about that, let's just do a review question. Notice how in Genesis 3.15, there's the word offspring, 
And then in Genesis 3.16, there's the word conception, and they're collective singular nouns. And so just going to take note of that. So moving to question four, how does Paul's explanation of the seed in Galatians 3.16 compare with 1 Timothy 2.15a and keeping in mind that offspring and conception are both said as singular nouns in this Genesis passage. Could you read Galatians 3.16 for us, Joanne? I sure can. Here it is. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but it says, and to your offspring, that is, to one person who is Christ. Now that was Paul writing a letter to the Galatians. So now we want to compare um, Paul's explanation of the seed that he said with these verses about Paul's use of, of the verb be saved in 1 Timothy 2.15a. So the first one we're going to look at is Matthew 1.21. Yeah. So th this is that the first one I was referring to. I'll just uh, read it. Uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. We used to have signs around the country saying, John 3.16. And football stadiums and stuff. And um, those are popular for, oh, 10, 15 years. And everybody knew what John 3.16 was. Uh, before that, though, when I was growing up, we used to, I used to see signs that say, uh, Jesus saves. There was a famous barn in the county um, next to mine when I was growing up. And the, the farmer had painted just giant thing there, Jesus saves, you know. And uh, so a lot of people... You know, they joked about it, but they knew the idea that Jesus saves. And what's, what's referring to is what is here in Matthew one twenty one: Jesus will save his people from their sins. Well, and you mentioned John 3.16, and so it's a famous verse, but it also comes into this whole study. Right. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, he saves us from sin and death. And he gives us forgiveness and everlasting life. But Paul actually goes back to it even in this letter. So in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, what does it say there? I'll read this one from the NIV. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Really, that builds a very, very strong case about who that childbearing is. And our last question is remembering Paul's testimony. And he gives his testimony three times, once in Acts 9, again in Acts 22, and then in Acts 26. And the question is, how was Paul saved by the childbearing? Paul is this wonderfully educated, great leader, Pharisee of the Jews, and he's right there in Jerusalem with the temple. And what went on in the temple day and night, all the time, there was the sacrifice of these pure and perfect lambs. So the blood of the sacrifice covered the sin of the offender. And faith in God's forgiveness through the blood of the sacrifice, this goes all the way back to the, to the Passover experience with uh, Moses in, the, in, uh, in Egypt even, where they, they took the blood of the sacrificed lamb and they put it on the doorposts and the angel of death went over all of Egypt and killed all the firstborn. But nobody was uh, taken among the Jews because they had this blood of the, of the sacrificed lamb on the doorposts. 
And so this ransom is, was signified. Everybody who was a Jewish uh, person had this taught over and over by symbol and by example and by word and by teaching and by the words of the Old Testament. They understood all of this. And Paul knew that all of this was looking forward to, because now this was after the death of Jesus on the cross, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the resurrected Jesus came and taught all the believers and explained all these things for 40 days and returned up into heaven on the road to Damascus, that same Jesus came and talked to him. And, and later on, he interacted with Paul, too. So Paul knew very clearly who this was. The, the child who was promised to Eve back in the Garden of Eden was Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to go to our last exercise, exercise four, and we're going to establish who they refers to. I'm making quotation marks around they mm -hmm. and what Paul wishes for them. So because 1 Timothy 2.15a completes the previous thought, as you explained, and 2.15b begins a new thought, perhaps it's best to think of 2.15b even as a new verse or like maybe verse 2.16. So here's the question. In light of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 12, who is referred to, this is the million-dollar question, in 2.15b? Right. All of a sudden, the pronouns change to plural. So we have she, singular, in the first half of 2.15, and then we have they in 2.15b. And this is where this verse became even more sour for me when I was learning from Dr. Stott, because he said, you know, we've got some translations that want to harmonize this, and they take, they take the they from the second half of the verse, and they make it plural in the first half of the verse. And so they say, women will be saved through childbirth, even though it's singular in Greek, very clearly that, because it's plural in the second half. Well, they just don't know what's going on, that's all. They don't realize that we have this excursus. We, we have this parenthesis where he talks about the Garden of Eden in verses 13, 14, and 15a. And then he gets back to what he's been doing, starting with verse 9. It's very interesting. There are four things that define the they in the last half of 2.15. You have to, you, you have to be, continue to be faithful. You have to be sober, etc., etc. There's four things. And these Greek words are are picked up. They're already stated in verses 9a and, uh, and 10. So he's obviously talking about the, this group of women that I've been trying to correct. If they're faithful now and they remain faithful after their salvation, just like Eve was saved, then they can uh, continue to be trained and then put into service. And he'll pick that up in the very next verse. I think we can rejoice that Paul properly understood the good news God gave to the woman in line one of Genesis 3.16 when he promised that it was sure that Eve would have conception of the seed who would crush Satan's head. And the petty and harmful interpretations of 1 Timothy 2 that restrict women from ministry, and we didn't really go into that a whole lot in our studies, you know, but they say, oh, women can't teach and they can't do this and they can't have authority. We're trying to stress what it, the passage does say. You know, and People can say lots of things that, that are wayward and, and don't they aren't faithful to the text. I don't want to focus on those, and I think, I think they just should be left behind. Those who have failed to see the grace of God in these verses, they've failed. The glorious truth taught in these verses is about restraining and then retraining wayward men and women overseers, thanks to the grace and power of Jesus, the promised child. Thanks to Jesus, the faithful word. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. 
Do you have your own copy of the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3, and our other books on the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible? Visit our website at true316.com. Do you want to go deeper? You're invited to enroll in the current study unit of True School. Take a look. Go to true316.com slash school.